If you have a Bible or Bible app, I invite you to open to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, which for some of you will immediately, uh, this, this is one of those uh, more well-known parts of the Bible, and if you don't know what it's about, uh, you will soon see. We're going to dive right in and start with the first three verses, which in the opinion of many people, are some of the most eloquent words ever written. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, there's a note sheet in your folder and the words will be up on the screen as well. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So clearly, the issue is love, and just as clearly, love is a big deal. You might guess that from all of the songs and movies and uh, poems that are about love, but it's not a big deal just because people say it is. It's a big deal because God says so. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning... I just want to say, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I'm really glad you're here, and I hope you're feeling welcome, and I'm glad you're going to hear some more about what, what, what it looks like to be a believer in Jesus. But if you are, love is something you have to take very seriously, because if you lack love, nothing else you do counts for much, as far as God is concerned. Did you notice that? No matter how eloquent I am, no matter how verbally amazing I am, no matter how smart I am, no matter how much faith I have, no matter how generous, how even sacrificial I am, if I don't have love, it's all pretty much a waste of time, as far as God sees it. Wow. Let that sink in for a moment. Without love, it's a waste of time. Does that seem serious? Sounds serious to me. Does that maybe even sound kind of harsh? Wow, really? It's actually intended to be helpful. It's meant to keep us from being impressed by the wrong things. Uh, This chapter comes right in the middle of a discussion on spiritual gifts, these abilities that the Holy Spirit gives us so that we can accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us, so that we can do the things he wants us to do. And those abilities can be very impressive. The Corinthians were quite impressed with their gifts. Um, They thought 
they thought that their giftedness, their ability to do these amazing things, they thought that that was proof of how very spiritual they were, how filled they were with God's spirit, how, how filled they were with his presence and with his power. But Paul here is telling them that they're impressed by the wrong things. And, and this is a common mistake. We can easily make this. We can easily be impressed by powerful displays of giftedness. And, and we see people do these amazing things, and we, we see them do powerful things, and, and we, we draw this conclusion. We think, wow, obviously God's Spirit is behind that. But that's actually a false conclusion. And Paul here is, he wrote this chapter to correct that false conclusion. This chapter tells us what really proves that the Spirit's presence and power is at work, and it's not ability, it's not giftedness, it's not amazing displays of power, it's love, genuine love. Love as God defines it, not as our culture defines it. Love is the main thing God wants to see in your life and in my life. I mean, that's not a knock on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are wonderful. They're from God, after all, and he wants us to use them, but only with love. Love is the essential ingredient to live the kind of life God wants you to live. You've got to have it. All right? What is it? Well, this is where we face a big challenge because we have been taught an understanding of love that, shall we say, is not exactly accurate. Ever since we've been kids, we've been, we've been told by our culture that love well, love's something you fall into. It's like a ditch. <laughs> you fall into it, and interestingly enough, you can also fall out of it. It's a feeling. You're helpless to control. You're helpless to resist. You know, it's, just, it's like a steamroller. <laughs> These are some interesting descriptions of love. I, I thought, you know, really, instead of telling you what I think, I should do some serious research on this. So I did, you know, I, I googled uh, popular sayings about love. There were some good ones. This one's my favorite. Um, love is a wildly misunderstood, although highly desirable, malfunction of the heart, which weakens the brain, causes eyes to sparkle, cheeks to glow, blood pressure to rise, and the lips to pucker. I mean, it's a fair description of what our culture thinks love is. And it's fun. That's fun. But it falls way short of how God describes love, which is what we're about to read. We're about to read God's description of love. Having just told us that love is absolutely essential, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes on and describes what authentic love looks like. So we don't have to wonder, we don't have to be confused, you know, we don't have to say, 
Well, Lord, I know you wanted me to love. I know you did, but I didn't have a clue. No, he tells us right here. So let's realize what we have here. This is from, not ultimately the Apostle Paul, it's from the one who invented love. The one who defines love. The one who actually is love at the core of his being. Uh, the Apostle John tells us God is love. It doesn't mean that's all God is, but love is absolutely essential to who he is. So that's what we're reading, beginning at verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So you can see here in verses 4 through 7 a list of qualities, 15 qualities of genuine love. And we're going to look at them one at a time so that we can understand what genuine love looks like. But not just understand, okay? We, we've already read at the beginning of the chapter that understanding by itself is useless. You can, ha- you can understand all mysteries. You can have all knowledge. But if you don't have love, that is, if you don't use your knowledge, if you don't use your understanding to do love, loving things, act lovingly, your knowledge is pretty much wasted. And interestingly, at least I think it's interesting, you can't really tell here from the English, but in the original language, every one of these qualities, every one of these 15 qualities is actually a verb, which means love is something we act on. It's something we practice. It's something we do. So the reason this list is here is so that we can evaluate how we actually behave toward the people in our lives. You know, those people you live with, those people you work with, those people you go to school with, those people you encounter as you go about your daily activities, both the people you enjoy and the people who drive you crazy. Are you loving them when you interact with them? Now, I wanna, we're, we're going to look at each quality, and, and then we're going to ask ourselves after each one, how am I doing with that one? 
How am I doing with that? Now, let me be really clear about this. Okay, don't, don't look at this as a test to see if you pass or fail when it comes to love. Because if you look at it that way, I guarantee you, you fail. Everybody in this room. We're all going to have qualities of love where we're falling short. The only one who would pass this test is Jesus. Okay, in fact, you can actually substitute the name Jesus for love here, and it works. For us, eh, not so much. But the thing we want to do... Don't look at this as a test. Look at it as a tool, a tool to help, a tool to help you see where you're falling short specifically so that you can grow in those qualities. The goal here is to strengthen the areas where we're weak in love. Okay, so look. Jesus wants to grow you. I don't care how old you are. You're a kid. You're a seasoned citizen. Anywhere in between. All right. Jesus wants to grow you and me to be more like him. He doesn't want to discourage you with how, how much you're not like him. So don't look at it that way. This is not a beating up time. This is a where, where, Lord, where would you want me to grow? Where does my love fall short? Help me. Okay, so here we go. 15 qualities of Christ-like love. Number one, love is patient. (laughs) Love is patient. Love puts up with imperfect people and imperfect situations. In the face of less than ideal circumstances, in the face of people not doing what we want them to do, what they should do, What does love do? Love demonstrates tolerance, a level of acceptance. It's okay. It's not ideal, but you be patient here. Just think about how Jesus loves you. Aren't you glad he's patient with you? Aren't you glad he's patient with you? Aren't you glad he's patient with those that you're praying for who don't know him yet, don't trust him yet? So, first evaluation, how patient are you? How do you react in the face of imperfect people, imperfect situations? Second, love is kind. Or, to bring out the verbal idea, love treats other people with kindness. What is kindness? It's doing good to somebody, being helpful, generous, to them out of a sincere concern for their genuine welfare. Doing good, being generous to help them out of a concern for their welfare. Kindness is often a response to a need of some kind. So you see a need and you're motivated by kindness to respond and and somehow do what you can to help meet the need. So how are you doing treating the people in your life with kindness? I want to pause here for just a second. I want to notice something about these first two qualities of love. Love is patient, love is kind, because I I don't think it's an accident that they're the first two in the list. I think that's very intentional because I think those are the foundational characteristics of God's love toward us. God's love toward us is thoroughly patient and thoroughly kind. Psalm 103 Verse 8 says, the Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, merciful and slow to anger. Put those together, that's a way of saying God is patient. God is patient with imperfect people. Because we're often stubborn, foolish, even rebellious. But instead of lashing out at us in anger that's deserved, God is patient with us. Look at 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Now that promise he's talking about is the promise Jesus made to return, to come again, to put an end to evil, to judge wickedness, to make right every wrong. Okay, when that happens, game over. Well, the Lord is not slow, because we're thinking, hurry up, God. Come on, Jesus. I mean, look at it. It's a mess. Would you hurry up? I want you to deal, put an end to evil. Oh, wait, okay, but not so much my evil. Appreciate your patience there, Lord. Thanks. <laughs> well, God is not, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, everyone to turn around, turn to him. Okay, so he's patient. And then it says he's gracious and abounding in steadfast love. That's a way of saying that God's heart is inclined to do good to us, to overflow in goodness to us. That's God's heart toward you, to do you good. In fact, Titus 3.4 uses this word kindness this undeserved goodness that God does toward us to describe Jesus coming to earth to rescue us, to be our Savior. Look at Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. See, the cross of Christ... Jesus dying to rescue us from sin and not condemn us, even though that's what we deserved. That is the ultimate proof that God is patient and kind. Do you know God has been patient with you? Do you know that? Do you know that God has been good to you even when you don't deserve it? Have you responded to his patience? Have you responded to his kindness? And put your trust in him. Put your trust in Jesus. Number three, love does not envy. So when somebody else experiences a, a great blessing, somebody else experiences something really good, a loving person will choose to be happy for them instead of wallowing in jealousy that, well, they got the blessing, how come I didn't? How are you doing at not envying those who maybe are more blessed, or it seems, than you are. Number four, love does not boast. I take this to mean that a loving person does not feel the need to broadcast their accomplishments so that other people will admire them. Because when we do that, really, that's a sign of insecurity. Yeah, I need you to praise me. So here, I'm going to tell you some things that about me that are really great, so that you'll admire me. Um, you know what that means? In order for us to be truly loving, 
We've got to be convinced, we've got to be secure in Jesus' love for us so that we don't feel compelled to get other people to admire us all the time. So how are you at this? How are you at not boasting? Can you listen to other people's achievements without feeling the need to recite your own? Number five, love is not arrogant. Literally is not puffed up. I love that. It's not puffed up. It's not full of itself. Well, okay, so arrogance is, is closely related to boasting, but there is a shade of difference. Arrogance has more to do with a sense of superiority over other people. So, boasting, boasting is essentially saying, hey, I'm great, admire me. Arrogance is saying, I'm greater than you. So you need to do what I want. You need to meet my demands. You need to conform to my will. That's arrogance. If, uh, if you go through life pretty much expecting everybody else to do what you want, you might just have a problem with arrogance. So how are you doing with that one? Number six, love is not rude does not act disrespectfully toward others, especially people you disagree with. Now, if you don't know what rude is, just check out any online article. Go down to the bottom and read the comments, the anonymous comments. You'll get plenty of examples of what it means to be rude and disrespectful. Love, on the other hand, doesn't trample on other people's dignity, doesn't trample on other people's feelings. This does not mean you can't ever say anything negative, but it means when you do say something negative, because it's in somebody's best interest to do so, that you do so as gently and as respectfully as possible. How are you at not being rude toward people you disagree with, maybe even very strongly? Number seven, love does not insist on its own ways or seek its own interests. Seek its own interests in disregard of other people's interests, in other words. One writer put it like this, love is not narcissistic, self-absorbed, and self-obsessed. It's not that. If you're narcissistic, you heard me just say love is narcissistic, and you thought, oh, great, this is good. No, <laughs> not narcissistic, not self-absorbed, not self-obsessed. And, and that makes total sense when you realize that fundamentally, okay, so if you were looking for a definition of love, this is the best I can come up with. Love is all about having a heartfelt commitment to someone else's best interests. It is a heartfelt commitment to someone else's best interests, putting their needs above your own. How are you at not being self-seeking? Number eight, <laughs> love is not irritable. Love, in the words of James 1.19, is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, not easily provoked to anger. How are you at that? 
Number nine, love is not resentful. Or another way you could say it, love does not keep an account, doesn't keep track of wrongs. I remember hearing uh, Dr. Emerson Egerich, who does the, the marriage seminar, Love and Respect. I remember him talking about a husband once telling him that whenever his wife gets upset, she gets historical. And Emerson said, wait, wait, you mean she gets hysterical? He says, no, I mean she gets historical. She gives me a history lesson about every bad thing I've ever done. <laughs> well, if that sounds like you, then this is an area where growth is needed. See, love strives to forgive wrongs and not hold on to grievances. Next two go together. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. That's a tough one in our world. This means love doesn't celebrate sin. Even if somebody says their sin is making them happy. Why? Does that mean because love doesn't want them to be happy? No, it's because love does want them to be truly happy. Everlastingly happy. Not just short-term pleasure that fades. You can't separate genuine love from truth. You can't do it. So does your love for people include telling them the truth? And then we come to the final four. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, love bears all things. That means love persists. Love hangs in there even when it's tough. Love believes all things. Love, this doesn't mean love is naive. Oh, sure, I'll believe whatever you say. It doesn't mean that. It means love never stops trusting God. Love never stops looking for good in others. Or wanting the best in others. Love hopes all things. Love clings to God's promises about ultimate joy. And then love endures all things. Love is tenacious. Love doesn't give up. Why? Because it's based on God's promises. So it endures. Based on the confidence we can have in Christ and his ultimate victory, that it's coming. So love can endure. All right, so there you go. There's a quick look at some qualities of Christ-like love. How'd you do? Which qualities do you need to grow in? Say, all of them. Okay, well, let's pick two or three. Pick two or three where the most growth is needed and start there. Say, all right, now what? How do you grow in love? Okay, this is so important. We've got to distinguish here between what is the natural answer to how to improve and what is the biblical answer to how to improve? And the natural answer is, try harder. You need more effort here. Try harder. Biblical answer? Faith. Faith in Jesus. The life God wants us to live is lived by faith in Jesus Christ from start to finish. Okay, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body. Okay, now wait a minute. He just said he no longer lives, but then he says I live. Okay, the, I don't live the way I used to live. Now Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the body, I live by 
faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, sounds good. What does that mean? It means that the key to doing anything God wants us to do, including growing in love, the key is trusting in Christ. How? Believing his promises, believing what he has said, and relying on his power. In contrast to relying on your own understanding and your own willpower. All right, let me, uh, let me unpack that and apply it to growing in love. Okay, there are four pieces to this. First piece. See your need to grow in love as a need to trust Jesus more and not exercise more willpower. Your need is a faith need, a need to trust Christ more and not just exercise more willpower. Exercising more willpower, you know, just gritting your teeth and trying harder to be loving probably won't work. And if it did work, who would get the glory? You would. Because it's your effort. So that's not it. The need is to trust Jesus more, not try harder. Second, identify which truth about Jesus you're struggling to believe in this area of weakness. In other words, intentionally think and connect the dots between this weakness in your love and some weakness in your faith. It's really important that we do this. Because what do we typically do when we blow it? What do we typically do when we fail? Some area of love. We just think, we scold ourselves, don't we? Ah, you big dummy. You did it again. You obviously weren't trying hard enough. No? That's not the real problem. If it were the real problem, we could simply fix it by trying harder. And then we would get the glory, not Jesus. Okay, that's not it. The real problem is we're failing to trust Jesus for something. And that's why we're failing to love. What is that something? Okay, let me try to give you an example. Let's say the quality of love you need to grow in is this uh, not keeping account of wrongs done to you. Because you tend to keep score. You don't maybe mean to, but you tend to keep a mental list of all the ways somebody has hurt you, and then when you get upset, you get historical. Okay? How are you going to stop doing that? Say, well, I'm going to try really hard. Won't work. It won't work. You've got to connect it to faith in Jesus. So, when you do keep a list of wrongs suffered... What is it you're not trusting Jesus to be and do for you? What is it you're not trusting Jesus to be and to do for you? Isn't it true that what you're not trusting him to do is to make it right? You're not trusting him to make sure that every injustice that you suffer will one day be turned by him into your ultimate joy. As Paul said, to believe that all your suffering is working for an eternal weight of glory that passes all understanding. So see, you don't have to keep a list. Why? 
because Jesus is. You don't have to keep a list. Every wrong will be made right. He will make it right. He will see to it personally that nothing you suffer because of faith in him will ever be in vain. Third, now that you've identified where it is that your faith is weak, pray that the Spirit of God will help you remember and believe the promises of Jesus that connect to your weakness. So pray again and again and again. Every time this weakness shows itself, say, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father in heaven, help me believe this promise. Help me believe that you will make right every wrong. Ask God to help you see that trusting Jesus and his promises will ultimately be far more satisfying than doing it your way. See, why do we withhold love? Why do we do that? You do it because you think you'll be better off that way. That's not true. You're afraid you're going to lose out. You're afraid if you love this person and, and give in or whatever it feels like to you, you're going to miss out. You're going to lose out. You're going to be the loser. But that's not true. If you do the loving thing because of Jesus, he will make sure you don't lose. Now, I feel like I need to insert in here Okay, I'm not talking about tolerating illegal, abusive behavior, okay? Because that's not loving. If somebody's engaged in abusive behavior, illegal behavior, the loving thing is for them to get caught, for that to become known so that they can get help. So that's not what I mean. I'm talking about those, those daily sacrifices of love that feel so difficult to us because we're afraid we're going to lose out if we don't stick up for ourselves. Pray. And fourth, share your struggle with a friend in Christ who will pray for you, who will encourage you, who will ask you how you're doing with this thing. So take your two or three, take it to a friend you can trust and say, hey, I'm going to be working on this. Will you help me figure out where it is I'm not trusting Jesus here? Will you, will you pray for me that I can trust Jesus with these things? Will you hold me accountable? Just ask me how I'm doing, because I'm probably going to forget. You know one of the biggest reasons why we fail is we try to do it alone. Is that a problem? We'll go back and read chapter 12. We're part of a body, the body of Christ, and every part is essential. We need one another. That's probably the hardest thing for Americans to believe, that we actually need one another. We really do. Let's pray. Wow, Father, your love is so amazing. And you've given us the perfect, perfect portrait of what your love is in Jesus. And you have been so patient with us. You have been so kind to us. And you have loved us so amazingly. Lord, will you help us grasp your great love for us And will you free us to love others? Will you free us from trying 
to somehow do it our own way, rely on our own understanding, rely on our own willpower. Lord, help us connect trusting Jesus to loving people. Help us, Lord, we need your help. And help us help one another. Help us encourage one another in this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.